0: A green expanse of grass dotted here and there with yellowing corn. A blue sky, a brilliant sun shimmering in the bright steel of bayonets. Baying sheep, cursing men. Just a bucolic farming scene on the plains of Meath in the long, hot summer of 1919. Then, he took 11 policemen, led by a sergeant and a head constable, with fixed bayonets, just to deliver 13 sheep to Drumree Railway Station. A week before this incident, local newspaper the Meath Chronicle reported, rather exciting scenes were witnessed on the roads leading from Meath to Dublin and at the entrances to Kilmesson, Drumree, Batterstown and Dunboyne stations, where large parties of strikers intercept stock belonging to farmers involved in the strike, which has become general in South Meath, and turned the droves of cattle, sheep, etc. back, except where drovers had permits issued by the strike committee. Similar action has been taken with regard to goods on the way to the farmers, which, in many instances, have been held up, and a general boycott is about to be inaugurated, and perhaps enforced. That was a report from the Meath Chronicle, and this was the Meath and Kildare farm labour strike of 1919. My name is Terry Dunn, and welcome to episode 1 of Peelers and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land. Stories rebelling against official versions. This is the land, but not a land of timeless tradition. This is the hothouse where the modern world is made. These are the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. This first episode is entitled The Forgotten and looks at the farm workers' movement during the Irish Revolution. We'll be particularly looking at the Meath and Kildare farm labour strike of 1919. Before we launch into the episode, remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find us available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. You can find out more about our project on our website, peelersandsheep.ie and look us up on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. With that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's get stuck back into episode one, The Forgotten. The strike began in Meath because the Farmers Association would negotiate with the Meath Labour Union but not with the Irish Transport and General Workers Union and in Kildare, because it was a lockout. The week's notice of the lockout was given on the 5th of July 1919. It was due to commence on the 12th of July 1919, but this lockout threat was met by immediate strike action. This threatened lockout was itself an escalation in response to a local dispute involving about 60 workers in Salbridge. There was a threatened countywide strike in the summer of 1918, and a discussion about strike action in the early part of the summer of 1919, so the situation had been building for some time. While this is remembered, insofar as it is remembered, as the Meath and Kildare farm labour strike, 1919 also saw agricultural labour disputes on a more localised scale in East Donegal, East Galway, North Cork, Kerry, Limerick, Tipperary, Wexford and Dublin. And the Mead and Kildare dispute influenced agreements made in adjacent counties like Carlow and Leash. Additionally, parts of West Wicklow and West Dublin were included in the Kildare and Mead strike. So, in the summer of 1919, this was a national movement with Kildare and Mead at its heart. What we will look at, roughly chronologically, is the background to the strike in economic terms, in terms of state policy and in regard to labour organising. Then the course of the strike itself, and finally shading into the aftermath of the strike, particularly some of the political ramifications. The main part of the background is there was a sharp rise in the cost of living coupled with a boom in farm profits. This was owing to the impact of the First World War, leading to massive food price inflation. In the first three years of the war, the price of bread was up 70%, the price of meat was up 190%, with the price of potatoes up 250%. The value of food exports from Ireland rose from £41.6 million in 1914 to £78.3 million in 1918, or in other words, the value of food exports nearly doubled over the course of the war. Government policy was food price controls. Rationing only came in very late in the course of the war. Rationing was more a Second World War measure. And as well as that, there was compulsory tillage and wage setting. Compulsory tillage to assure food supply and wage setting to discourage too much movement of workers from agriculture to arms and ammunition factories. This state intervention came in first for the year of 1917. 1916 had seen a poor harvest in Ireland, as well as poor harvests in Australia, Canada and Argentina, countries which were all important sources of foodstuffs for Britain. Then, in 1917, there was an extension of U-boat warfare and the sinking of more British shipping. So this shifted the state in a more interventionist direction, away from a focus on persuasion and patriotic propaganda for more food production, which was the main emphasis in the earlier years of the war. So what did compulsory tillage mean? Basically, every occupier of more than 10 acres had to put 10% more of their land under crops in 1917 and a further 5% in 1918. And then, in March 1918, as a new German offensive started on the Western Front, a new order added a further 5% of land under crops for all occupiers of more than 200 acres. In 1918, the area under crops was greater than any time since the 1870s. This was briefly reversing the long-term trend in Irish agriculture, away from tillage and towards pasture. Now, this is all important because back in those days of relatively restricted mechanisation, more tillage production meant a much greater demand for labour, and consequently a much greater power in the hands of workers. There was some mechanisation by this time, but in March 1917 there were only 70 tractors in the whole of Ireland. So the process of introducing labour-saving technology was really in its infancy relative to what was to come in the second half of the 20th century. Looking at the statistics from 1914, what is striking is the lack of tillage production. In what would be considered the most environmentally advantaged Parts of Ireland, the classic tillage zone of the east and south, only two counties in 1914 had more than a fifth of land area in crops. Those were Louth and Wexford. In Waterford and Kildare, less than 12% of land was in crops, and in Mead, less than 7% of land was in tillage. So the introduction of compulsory tillage was going to have a profound impact in terms of labour demand. So the beginnings of the movement of farm labourers is in March 1917, after this date intervention of compulsory tillage and wage setting. Greater demand for labour because of increased tillage gave workers more power to raise demands, which is what happens in March 1917 in Kildare, Louth, Meath, Cork, Limerick, South Tipperary, Kilkenny and Wexford. In the early days, there was one case of the sabotage of a motor plough in Fenor near Kildare Town, one recorded case of a threatening letter in County Louth and one episode in the Kells District in North Meath where a group of youths armed with sticks supposedly visited houses at night and ordered men not to work. But mostly this movement was free of the sort of violence and property destruction associated with 19th century agrarian movements. The movement begins with local organisations which eventually merge into the Irish Transport and General Workers Union also known as the ITGW or the transport union. The transport union went from a membership of five thousand in May nineteen sixteen to one hundred and twenty thousand in december nineteen twenty. Farm workers were by far the largest single occupational category in those numbers. Roughly forty to fifty thousand farm laborers in contrast with roughly four thousand dockers. Dockers being one of the next largest occupational categories among the members and being the original base of the union. The IGGW's absorption of local farm labourer organisations began in Blanchestown on the 11th of March 1917 when the Blanchestown Land and Labour League was transformed into the Blanchistown IGGW branch. The transport union started as a breakaway from the Liverpool-based National Union of Dock Labourers in the wake of the 1907 Belfast Dock Strike. Its most prominent and famous leaders were James Connolly and Jim Larkin, But we must remember that for most of the period we are talking about, Connolly was dead and Larkin imprisoned in the United States. In short, the early history of the ITGW was a succession of local conflicts in port towns culminating in the 1913 Dublin lockout. The lockout is of course well served with histories, literature and an excellent TV series. But it nearly led to the smashing of the Union and really the ITGW's revolutionary heyday was later in its revival from 1917 onwards. The lockout also saw the formation of the transport union linked militia, the Irish Citizens Army, which in 1916 was centrally involved in the separatist revolt known as the Easter Rising. In 1916 though, many former transport union members were serving in another military force, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers of the British Army. There are a number of important features of the transport union to bear in mind. Firstly, it mostly organised general labourers, like dockers or carters or later farm labourers, as opposed to the highly skilled craft workers who, up until this time, dominated the trade union movement. And it should be noted there were sharp status differences and differences in income and working conditions between these two different groups of workers. Secondly, the transport union promulgated the idea of the sympathetic strike and the idea of tainted goods, That is to say that one group of workers would take action in support of another group of workers even over an issue which was not of shared direct immediate relevance to both. So, for instance, the 1913 Dublin lockout spreads to Jacob's Biscuit Factory when workers there refused to handle flour from Shackleton's mills on account of a dispute in the mills, not a dispute specific to Jacob's Biscuit Factory. Thirdly, the Transport Union was part of an international movement in the first instance part of the great unrest in the united kingdom in the years leading up to the first world war but it was also part of the syndicalist movement which meant in short a socialist emphasis on the point of production on the workplace on direct action and sympathetic action and on unions as both a vehicle of revolution and as an embryo of a future socialist society within those broad parameters syndicalism was actually politically diverse likewise what evidence we have suggests that members of the ITGW dipped into many different streams of diverse thought and practice, from labourism and mild social democracy, to the cooperative movement, to Bolshevism, to syndicalism. Nonetheless, the message in the transport union's newspapers had perfect clarity in portraying the union as part of an international movement which was in no means simply about higher wages and better employment conditions, but was in fact about building a new society radically different from the existing one. Now to go back to the development of the farm labour movement and the background of the 1919 strike. Formerly organised local bodies were established in South Kildare over the winter of 1917 and 1918. At a meeting of Bert Crossroads on the 23rd of December 1917, Bert Labour Union was set up. In February 1918, the Birtown Labour Union appears to have either expanded outside its regional boundaries or merged with other groups and was renamed the South Kildare Labour Union. Meanwhile, in nearby Castle Dermot, Sinn Fein took the lead in establishing a Labourers' organisation. First meeting in the month of January 1918. On the 24th of March 1918, the first I. D. W. Rally took place in Athy. This was geographically distinct from the Birtown and Castle Dermot-based efforts, while those bodies were also building links. The March 24th rally mostly seems to have involved groups and individuals from the south and west of Athai, while the South Kildare Labour Union and the Castledermot Labour Club organised areas more to the south-east. The local organisations joined the Transport Union over the summer and autumn of 1918. First the Castledermot Group and then the South Kildare Labour Union. In August 1918, the Kildare Labour Union still has a separate existence from the Transport Union and negotiates a lower wage rate in the south of the county than the IGW does in the north of the county. But sometime after September 1918, all the agricultural workers' unions in Kildare merged into the transport union. Over the winter of 1917 and into the middle of 1918, there had been a lockout against the transport union in Russell's Sawmills in Port Arlington. That lockout was ultimately defeated. And this event had the paradoxical effect of raising the union's profile locally and in adjacent districts. So the transport union spreads out into the countryside, building on existing organisations and relating to a pre-existing history of mobilisation. There was a whole history of farm labourer movements before the 1917 to 1923 movement. There were land and labour associations which had campaigned for rural public housing. A demand realised in the Labourers' Ireland Act of 1906 and other related legislation, dating back as far as 1883. By 1914, 50,000 council colleges had been built for rural workers. The Land and Labour Associations also campaigned for what was known as direct labour, that is the council services would be provided by directly employed workers rather than subcontractors. Earlier there was the more radical but localised Knights of the Plough, active in South Kildare in the 1880s, strikes and sabotage of new labour-saving machinery in Kilkenny and adjacent districts in 1858 and widespread mobilisation in Meath, Kildare and Carlow in the early 1830s. So on to the course of the strike itself. It is important to understand that the production of beef cattle took place in different stages across the country. An individual animal might be born in a dairying part of Munster, brought on in a small farm region in the west, fattened in the East Connick Plain and finished in Mead, before finally being sent for export to England via a market in Stony Batter in North Dublin. Animals were sold at market days or fair days in particular towns, so an important task for the farm workers was to control access to these events. So for instance, the newspaper The Saturday Post reported on the 16th of August 1919, Quote, Strong pickets of members of the Transport Workers Union were on all roads leading to Newbridge Fair from 6 o'clock until 11, and different lots of cattle were held up near the town until the necessary permit was produced. And where the permit was not forthcoming, the cattle were not allowed into the fair. End quote. So if you hadn't settled with your workers, you were not given a permit, and hence could not sell your stock. Likewise, merchants would buy up produce at markets for poultry, eggs, pigs and so on, And again, a permit system was in place for this. Likewise, railway stations were blockaded. If you managed to get your stock past the pickets, maybe by selling by arrangements separate from a market day, the next barrier is sympathetic action by other groups of workers. The drovers who moved cattle from railway stations to port and the dockers who loaded them onto ships. They all refused to handle stock from the strike-bound areas without the permits. And some companies did likewise. That is to say, companies actually wrote to the transport union to make sure the transport union knew that they would not be dealing in stock from the strike areas. There were efforts to avoid Dublin port. That's the port where the transport union was strong. Important background is the transport union was not the union of all dock workers. The rival national union of dock labourers was strong in Drogheda, Dundalk and Belfast. Also, there were sectarian divisions in Belfast. The docks there were divided into confessional enclaves with Protestants dominating the cross-channel trade with Britain. But these efforts to avoid transport union-aligned dockers were to no avail. Other groups of dockers were the same. They did not handle the tainted goods. Special trains were hired to bring stock to Belfast, but the stock was returned. There was also the possibility of sympathetic action by railwaymen, but this was held in reserve. Obviously also farm work wasn't getting done. And if you club together with neighbouring farmers to do some work, you might find... A situation like that of a Ratholt Grazier who, as it was reported in the Voice of Labour, which is the newspaper of the Transport Union, "...awoke one fine morning to see the hay he had so laboriously cocked adorning the hedges of his meadow." As we move towards August, matters come to a head. We are closer to harvest time and the time of maximum demand for labour, and there are drought conditions. It was a lovely hot summer, and those drought conditions are lessening grass growth, and thereby increasing the need for farmers to sell their livestock on before the animals start losing weight and hence losing value. By late July, the beginning of August, increasing numbers of individual farmers have settled, and the Voice of Labour was able to report on this. Now, the notable thing about this report, or one of the notable things, is it gives us some insight into how small some of these workplaces were. So when Lucan... Eleven farmers have caved in, covering forty three men in Rathangan, fourteen farmers employing fifty four men in Dunlaven, nine and twenty four in Carbury, fifteen farmers employing thirty men in Montreven, twelve farmers, including a president of a farmers' union branch employing four men, and in newbridge, sixty seven farmers employing one hundred and four men. End quote. Now those are very small workplaces when you consider that even the president of a farmers union branch was only employing four men it underlines the success of farm labor organizing when you consider that not only were they not the possessors of rare skills like the tradesmen and craft workers who had up until that time dominated the trade union movement not only that but they were scattered in small groups in little workplaces not massed in their tens of thousands like the coal miners or car workers that dominated 20th century trade unionism. On July 23rd, there was a rally in Nace, where Tom Nagel, who was to go on to be a Labour Party TD in Cork, was the speaker. This was one of a series of rallies around Meath and Kildare with visiting speakers in support of the strike. Nagel, according to the Voice of Labour, received an enthusiastic reception from discharged soldiers. The particular significance of this is that there were rumours that demobilised soldiers were going to be re- recruited as replacement workers. Or even the ex-soldiers would have their unemployment payments withheld if they did not scab. These rumors played out in a thigh in a particular way. The situation in a thigh in late July 1919 was that there was a minor rioting carried out by demobilized soldiers. They were angered by the coincidence of celebrations greeting the return of a released Republican political prisoner, John Hayden, and the local cancellation of so-called Peace Day celebrations marking the end of the First World War. There was some minor violence, Republican bunting torn down, the bicycle shop of a Sinn Féin attacked, fist fighting in the streets and so on. Because of the widespread rumours that ex-soldiers were to be recruited as strikebreakers in the farm labour strike, a deputation of the demobilised soldiers went to the thigh offices of the transport union to assure the strikers of their support. This seems to have been the beginning of a relationship which culminated with the symbolically powerful public adhesion of the ex-soldiers to the cause of labour, in the form of their presence at a Labour Party municipal election rally on January 5th, 1920. Then the speakers were brought to the podium behind the local ex-soldiers' fife and drum band and there was, quote, a large number of ex-soldiers present who loudly cheered every reference to the Workers' Republic, end quote. In the January 1920 municipal and urban local elections, according to the Irish Times, Sinn Féin secured 550 seats, Unionists, that's British Nationalists, secured 355, the Nationalist Party 238, while 394 were returned as Labour. Now to get back to the main story of the strike, while the blockade was forceful, it was also mostly peaceful, which would lead one to suppose that the pickets had numbers on their side. The Royal Irish Constabulary Inspector General's report for July 1919 reads in part, quote, the agricultural show at Navan had to be abandoned. The fairs at Navan and Trim were complete failures, farmers being afraid to send their stock, and the roads to Dublin were picketed to prevent cattle being sent to the Dublin market. Several prosecutions are pending, but on the whole there was little disorder. End quote. Similarly, the Royal Irish Constabulary Report for Kildare for the following month claims quote, there has been no serious outrage, but many cases of hay-tossing etc. in connection with the strike. End quote. Um, by hay tossing is meant minor sabotage the term specifically refers to throwing down haystacks the same report goes on to claim quote, there were a considerable number of cases of intimidation in connection with the strike End quote. however the post strike court cases were all for quite petty offences the press did report some minor confrontations but these seem to have been localised particularly to Kilmesson and Meath and to the town of Athoy and Kildare additionally these reports date from late in the strike. In August in Meath, something of a militant minority of farmers sought to escalate by securing more intervention from Dublin Castle, with the intent of getting the government to buy crops and stock and to mobilise the military. 400 soldiers arrived in Navan on Monday the 10th of August. There were also reports and rumours of the arrival of scab labour, either Donegal men or ex-soldiers. In the middle of August, the railway line near Navan was sabotaged and a train derailed with fortunately only minor injuries to rail staff the background to the rail sabotage is that Eamon Rooney the transport union organizer for Meath appears to have inveigled the Irish Republican Army into involvement the statement of Seamus Finn a Meath IRA officer to the Bureau of Military History a mid-20th century oral history project gives the impression that the IRA was basically codded by Rooney however Finn was talking in 1953 about events which had happened in 1919 and it would not be surprising if his outlook had not shifted over the 34 years from the revolutionary 1910s to the conservative 1950s. In 1953, Finn claimed that they, they thought they were interfering in the transport of troops and does not mention the transport of cattle. In any case, it was a goods train that was derailed. At least in 1918, the volunteers of the Irish Republican Army were encouraged to support quote, the movement for the rights of the working class. End quote and in that year we do see some involvement in that direction, as for instance with Sinn Féin being involved in the founding of the Labour Union in Castle Dermot. Finn certainly gives the impression that there was dissension within the ranks of the IRA over their involvement in the railway sabotage. It is possible that Rooney fooled them, or that Rooney mistakenly thought a troop transport was imminent, or that the IRA was beginning to turn this way and that under the influence of class struggle. After all, The Farmers' Association was led by men with what Finn called quote, strong pro-British tendencies, end quote, and they had asked for the involvement of Dublin Castle and the British military. One of the impacts of the strike was to move people in new political directions, which included the opening up of divisions within the Republican separatist movement. The police report for Kildare for August 1919 claimed that, quote, on various occasions Sinn Féin employers were at variance with Sinn Féin workers, with the result that there is all ill feeling between them, end quote. Consequently, while in much of the country Labour and Sinn Féin came to a sort of pact in the 1920 urban and municipal local elections, in Newbridge the parties were open competitors. That's a turnaround from the situation existing in the spring of 1918, when a transport union rally in Kildare Town was accompanied by a parade of the Newbridge volunteer unit this kind of class division of the national movement arose in meath also for prominent sinn john sweetman went so far as to accuse transport union workers of being the advance guard of a new Cromwellian plantation in the end a settlement was made in late august the details for kildare are as follows a settlement was made in Athy on wednesday august 20th for south kildare and on friday august 22nd a settlement was made in nace with application to the entire county there was probably a bit of a north-south split within the Irish Farmers Union. Negotiations had broken up the previous week and after that, South Kildare had settled independently. In Kildare, the settlement established a 34 shilling weekly wage rate for a 10-hour day, six-day week for the districts of Selbridge, Maynooth, Nace, Newbridge, Kilcolland, Kildare, Clane, Rathangan and Monster Evan, and a 32 shilling weekly wage rate for a 10-hour day, six-day week for the districts of Athy, Balatorre, Ballymore Eustace, Carbury, Nurney, Rathmore, Robertstown, Dunlavin and Castle Dermot. In a nutshell, that's a lower rate for the southern and western parts of the county. The great expansion of the Transport Union into rural Ireland, in which the Meath and Kildare strike was pivotal, laid the basis for what happened next, the largest strike in Irish history on the 13th and 14th of April 1920. This was the general strike in support of hunger-striking political prisoners in Mountjoy Jail. The result of which was the collapse of the government's position and the release of the prisoners, both convicted felons and internees. Both the British Army and at least elements of the IRA were highly conscious of the impact of the strike. According to the British Army's own official study of the conflict, the strike, quote, nullified the effects of the efforts made by the Crown forces during the preceding three months, end quote. While Pader Clancy, leader of the hunger strikers and former second in command of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA, commented the general strike has them bet now for some areas of the country we have the transport union's internal reports on the strike these would have been reports written by local branch secretaries and sent up to uh, to union headquarters in dublin here are two reports from kildare this is what the nace branch secretary wrote on april 15th 1920 quote we did remarkably well here during the strike The first day was impossible to get the shops shut owing to the big crowd from Dublin for the races and also on account of the Dublin crowd having horses and cars in the different yards. At any rate, we marshaled our forces yesterday morning and closed every place. Banks, shops, solicitors' offices, etc. We managed all right. All they want is a bit of bluff. A picket of our fellows paraded the town armed with bricks, sticks and etc. Not with our consent and if a shop had dared to open, there would have been murder. However, the traders cooperated with us in every way, and happily, everything passed off successful. End quote. The report from Maynooth, in the north of County Kildare, reads in part, quote, workers down tools in sympathy with political prisoners. On Tuesday and Wednesday last, all work was suspended at Maynooth to show the sympathy of the workers with the Irish soldiers languishing in England's jails. On both days volunteers and transport workers marched from Union Hall to Catholic Church where rosary and litany was recited for welfare of political prisoners. When the prisoners were released a rosary of thanksgiving in Irish and English was recited in Catholic Church by Reverend Parish Priest. After devotions a parade was again held, headed by the local band. The procession carrying the tricolour and red flags made a most imposing display bonfires being lighted in the market square. End quote. Now the big question here is why was this radicalism seemingly such a fleeting momentary phenomenon? It did not seem to last or leave much overt traces. Well firstly, it existed in a pretty unique set of circumstances. There was an agricultural boom as well as a high demand for labour due to compulsory tillage and all that in the context of a profound political conflict across the country. Fundamentally though we have to understand that the workers movement was a minority movement and this is apparent when we look at the structures of the economy and the patterns of development. In the early 20th century, agricultural wage labour was the largest employment sector for male workers in the 26 counties that became the Irish Free State in 1922. However, agricultural wage workers represented only a minority of the agricultural workforce, only 18%. That figure rose to 33% in an area comprising of the eastern province of Leinster and the eastern portion of the southern province of Munster. The remainder of the agrarian workforce consisted of farmers themselves and what were known as assisting relatives. Assisting relatives were the non-inheriting members of the farming family. In broad strokes, this was an east-west division. But even in Leinster and Munster, those eastern provinces I was talking about, the majority of farm holdings were less than 30 acres in 1911. That's less than 12 hectares, quite small. Moreover, a minority of agricultural workers lived in, which is to say they were hired on an annual or seasonal basis and lived more or less as part of the farm household, though with usually inferior conditions. While this situation of extreme dependence was more frequently found in the West, it also existed in the East. So the classical agrarian proletariat consisted of a minority of the agrarian workforce a large part of the overall working class as well as being based on a proletarian minority within rural ireland the irish workers movement might be considered as based on a regional militant minority within the british isles as a whole so when the slump came and when the new irish free state was consolidated the farm labourers' movement of the revolutionary years was rolled back that's another story though there were however lasting impacts For instance, the continuing presence of the Labour Party in rural parts of Leinster and East Munster over the course of the 20th century. And more practically, although it began earlier than the revolutionary years, we should remember the extensive rural public housing programme, started under the British state but continued by Irish governments. You've been listening to Peelers and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land. We'll be back soon with our second episode called Prairie Fire, looking at the agrarian movement in the west of Ireland in the spring and early summer of 1920. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about our project on our website, peelersandsheep.ie, and look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well.